welcome to Prescription Advocacy. I'm Ariel Trosser. And I'm Dr. Neely Kaplan-Merce. Hello, Neely. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing, Ariel? I'm okay. We're speaking just at the end of a socially distanced Thanksgiving weekend. This next uh, episode that we're about to listen to, this next interview, I know is something very close to your heart. Yes. Yes, it is. And we probably don't even need to give much of an introduction to this episode. I I had, um, you know, not known that it was going to be as poignant when we asked Michelle Cohen, Dr. Michelle Cohen, to speak to us about gender bias in healthcare. Um, I, I hadn't realized that I was going to experience um, something very public and, and very infuriating. And of course, we didn't know that the vice presidential debate in the United States was going to echo the same issue. Yeah. Yeah. We all need t-shirts that say I'm speaking now. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I tweeted afterwards that my voice is only here because I'm saying something that resonates with women everywhere. I think it, this episode is going to resonate not just for people who've struggled in terms of sexism, but also racism and other forms of discrimination for sure. Yeah. In every workplace and every area of life. Right. And uh, yeah, we hope you all enjoy this. There's a little bit of anger, a little bit of frustration, but uh, it's good. It was good to help take part in this conversation. So hopefully more of us can have our voices heard. So Michelle, you tell us about yourself. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for having me. First of all, I think this is going to be a a great discussion. Um, So I am a family doctor in Brighton, which is a small town in southeastern Ontario. Um, And I also teach um, out of the Queen's Family Medicine Department, mainly as a community preceptor. So taking medical trainees um, into my office and and, uh, giving them some rural exposure. Um, And I'm also the co-chair of the Ad committee for Canadian women in medicine um, and I've been doing a lot of writing and uh, social media advocacy and organizing over the last four years or so and uh, looking to do more. Wow so why don't we frame this conversation Neely why don't you tell us what happened to you and we can use that <laughs> as an entry point to talk about some of the challenges about being a woman in medicine these days or always. Uh, yeah so well it's all a blur but I was asked at the last minute to appear on a CBC interview to talk about our second wave of COVID. And I I guess I had been approached because I'm quite vocal advocating for community and talking about barriers to accessing tests and marginalized populations. Anyway, so I was asked to join a conversation and, and I knew that they were sort of pitting me against somebody else. And this other person, as far as I knew, was just somebody who wanted to open up the economy as opposed to shutting things down. And I took a very generous and and liberal approach ahead of time. I I gave sort of the other person the benefit of the doubt and assumed that we were both advocating for, you know, the health and well-being of our communities. But then as soon as the interview began, he started talking over me. He turned to me at one point and told me that I clearly needed to go back to school, that I wasn't educated enough to speak on the topic of 
COVID. And I think partly I was primed to uh, react to a male colleague shutting me down because we see a lot of women in media. Oh, sorry, the other way around. We see a lot, a lot of men who are approached by media to speak as medical experts, but not as often women. And also, I'm a family doctor, and he's a specialist, and so there was an element of a hierarchy within medicine. Mm. But anyway, he told me that I was screaming at him. So I, I, I basically just said, no, I'm being assertive, and I'm saying what I am here to say because you're speaking over me. You know, And I corrected him and said that I actually didn't need to go back to school, that I actually have a PhD as well as an MD, and I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about community. Anyway... Afterwards, I sent out a, a tweet to sort of challenge Canadians to look at this and to think about the gender discrimination and um, sort of sexism and other issues that were raised by this interview. And CBC apologized to me, which was uh, kind of them. The senior producer phoned me and apologized. But the outcry was, you know, one that you know, thousands of people responded and said that they saw the sexism and that they were upset by it. And then every now and then somebody would write in, like I got today from a, another doctor on a on a national listserv telling me that uh, he thinks that the only sexism was my was my challenging um, gender um, discrimination. So I was left a little bit perturbed. I'm not sure why why I was set up to be insulted on live television, uh, but I held my own and that came across, but it's tiring and it's tiring for women in medicine and in every other field. And that's, I think what happened with the, with the public response to it was that, you know, people, whether they're, whether they're physicians or they're nurses or they are um, electricians or they are teachers, you know, it doesn't matter what field, uh, but women feeling that, they have been told to watch their tone or being told that they aren't good enough or smart enough or as expert as the men. And Michelle, what's your read on that? What's your experience been as a woman in medicine? So it was, it was, uh, it was shocking to see on TV, you know, to see that kind of encounter on live TV, but it was so familiar um, as a woman in healthcare. And I think a lot of the, the response that Neely got online was coming from that recognition of a, a male specialist, specialist in particular, because you're right, there's definitely a, a sort of um, hierarchy between specialists and, and family doctors or generalists. Um, but uh, a male specialist condescendingly talking down to a woman with whatever concerns she's bringing up rather than addressing those concerns and working through those concerns, but instead rolling his eyes and telling her that she doesn't know anything and telling her that she's shouting or in other words, tone policing her. It's such a common experience. And what I, I really liked really was that you called it out right from the beginning. You know, I feel like this is the kind of encounter that so many of us would have internalized and then maybe thought, well, there's something maybe wrong with me, or it's just this particular person doesn't like me, or I must have done something wrong. And then maybe later on when you get together with some female friends or colleagues or discuss online in a, a social media group that is just for, for women, you know, and share that experience that 
other female colleagues will say, oh yes, you know, that's just my experience too, or this is so typical, or this is what I've gone through. And, and you learn the com how commonplace those sorts of experiences are. So I really like that instead of having this difficult encounter with him and not calling out the sexism and then kind of leaving it to everyone else to who watched that clip to then call it out as sexism, you right off the bat said, this is not appropriate. I don't appreciate the sexist attitude. So so kudos to you for that. You know, you called out what everyone else could, uh, you know, a few exceptions, um, whatever, certainly what, what most other women in healthcare, I think, would have recognized and, and would, is a common experience. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he, like I'm somebody who has studied women and gender studies and, you know, sat on these committees. I used to be on the Ontario Medical Association's Outreach to Women Committee. Like I knew what I what I was getting and I, of course, called him out on it. But it was supposed to be a younger colleague of mine who was who was supposed to be the um, the voice of community. And and she thanked me afterwards and said, you know, she would have been torn apart because there's also sometimes ageism. Right. And and I had the confidence of um, the years of experience that I could, I could just stand up to it, but she might not have stood up to it. And one of the things, I guess, when I've been watching you, Michelle, with all of the work that you've been doing and writing about gender biases in medicine, one of the things that strikes me is that none of this is new or surprising. And over, you know, maybe the 20 years that I've been going to committee meetings that would raise those sort of issues. Like, I don't know if I've seen anything really change. And I don't know what your what your impression is, 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 do you find that people are surprised by what you're telling them? I think it's interesting. I feel like sometimes we get kind of sequestered into little silos and women in women only spaces or spaces without men in them are much more open with one another about the sorts of experiences that we have and the, the how common it is to be talked down to in that way how common it is to be tone policed or talked over or silenced or not make it onto that committee because a guy with less qualifications somehow made it on there instead of you you know that that sort of experience and then i think in in co-ed spaces, uh, more public spaces where our male colleagues are present, we are less likely to bring up those issues because there's a lot of stigma around talking about that. And I think because too, in a sort of high performing uh, profession like ours, we emphasize meritocracy a lot. And we are very hard on ourselves in terms of pushing ourselves to perform more. And a lot of us are just overachievers just from, from you know our personalities, our innate personalities. So I think there's a reluctance to talk about something which might out you as a complainer or might make it look like you didn't get that position or you were silenced in that meeting, maybe because of merit and not really because of gender or because of any other sort of bias, racial bias or other biases as well. And, and I'm really just, I'm just tired of accepting that. I, I really, I feel like I, I'm not in training anymore. You know, I'm 10 years out now. Um, I'm not young anymore, you know, and I'm, I'm not afraid that I'm going to lose some sort of position or I'm not going to get a good evaluation or, and I think there's a benefit too of being out in the community rather than being in academia, um, being directly in academia. So it gives me a bit of freedom to call these things out and, and say, I, I don't, I don't really care if you don't think that you, this male physician who's telling me that you've never seen sexism in all your years in medicine, which is a, a comment I've gotten a number of times. 
you know, I don't really care that you've never seen sexism in medicine. I'm telling you that it exists and I'm telling you that it's a big problem. And if I empower other women to also find their voices and say that this is their experience as well, then I think that's how we move forward. But medicine and healthcare, medicine in particular, is a very conservative and slow moving profession. So I feel that in part, it's my role to to kind of push it in that direction and, and push it towards progress. And, and that and sometimes involves me being a little bit of a nag and a little bit of a shit disturber. But I think that's a kind of in my nature. So I'm using the using the gifts that I have, the skills that I have. But wait, um, you know, that's called leadership when a man does. Right. Right? Exactly. It's not nagging. It's not too disturbing. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, I work in a completely different field, but I have had younger women uh, co-workers come to me and say, I'm so glad you're always the one to say the thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm so yeah. glad that you're an advocate. I'm so glad that you're unapologetically yourself because when people are newer or in a more precarious position, they don't feel they can. And so as someone who, again, is a bit older, has a certain amount of security and job experience, uh, I absolutely feel it's my role to speak out. And also as a white person, you know, yeah. as a uh, as a woman. Um, so, you know, in our own workplace, um, when the George Floyd protests were starting, there were, you know, I had racialized coworkers who were scared to ask certain questions in the workplace. And I was very happy to connect with them and say, hey, do you want me to be the one to ask the awkward question in that meeting? Because I'm happy to do it. So using that privilege is really, really helpful. But I'm also interested to hear from you, Michelle. Uh, you, you know, both of you have referred to the sexism you face from other doctors as female doctors, but how does that kind of gender bias impact the way women are treated as patients? So yeah, there's a, 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 lot, a good body of research in terms of the um, misogyny in healthcare and women's experiences in healthcare. Um, medicine is historically a patriarchal and white supremacist um, establishment and very slow to progress. So women have historically been, uh, our pain, women's pain has been under-evaluated and under-appreciated. Um, you know, you see examples like certain, certain syndromes and conditions will be framed based on um, the, assuming that the male example is the classic or textbook example. So the, the easiest example is uh, heart attacks. So um, the way that men typically present with a heart attack is the standard or typical presentation of a heart attack. And it's been known for a long time that women present with different symptoms when it comes to a heart attack. And this gets labeled atypical heart attack. So the type of, of pain that a woman presents with when she's having a heart attack is atypical because it's different from the kind of male default model. So women are, are understudied when it comes, women's bodies and physiology, anything that's really the non-cis male physiology is understudied and underappreciated. And, and women in uh, female patients in healthcare uh, frequently talk about not having their concerns listened to, being dismissed. Um, there's a tendency to to dismiss women as having anxiety or having some kind of mental health issue in a dismissive sort of way when the issue might be something completely different. So some things are uh, misdiagnosed or, or underdiagnosed and, and there's a tendency to sort of just assume that, well, you know, she's just nervous, she's just anxious, she's just stressed. Um, you know, she, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. It's not really real. So there's a, a big, big problem. I mean, the classic example I hear from people in my peer group are women who, or non-binary people who want to have the tubes tied or want to have a hysterectomy being told they literally have to ask permission of their male partner whether they can do this. Yeah. <laughs> Men can get a vasectomy very easily. I have a former classmate who actually wrote a zine 
10 years ago called Ask Me About My Tubal Ligation. <laughs> literally about how she in her mid-20s did her own medical advocacy and finally convinced doctors to let her have a tubal ligation. Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. such a rare thing that she had to make a zine about it, right? So, yeah, there's a paternalistic attitude in medicine, and medicine has been sort of pushing back against that paternalism that's at its sort of fundamental core or, or the essential history of medicine. Uh, that paternalistic attitude that sort of we know better than you, we know best, you know, they're there, dear, everything will be okay. You just listen to us and take our advice, and everything will be fine. And so there's been a, a lot of patient-based advocacy against that and pushing back against that. And that has improved women's health. And I think the, the movement of women into medicine has helped as well. Uh, we need representation in medicine. All those under all those groups that are uh, historically and currently underrepresented in medicine are, are the groups that are also not, uh, not treated as well as the sort of white cis male hetero model that is taken as the default and is also pretty much what the medical leadership or healthcare leadership is made up of. So diversity and representation is not just important from a justice perspective, that everyone who wants to be in leadership in healthcare or in medicine uh, deserves to be just as a matter of justice, but also representation is important because patients deserve to be represented in uh, amongst the healthcare workers who are taking care of them. And also in leadership, that's where policy decisions are made, that's where research decisions are made in terms of researching issues that affect women or conditions that affect women. All of those decisions are still in the hands of a very, very few and very homogenous group. I know what many of the biases are within medicine, um, but our listeners may not. I know that our colleague Leslie Barron has talked about how some surgical procedures, the same procedures that are performed on women, um, physicians are paid less to do than if they were doing those procedures on men or equivalent procedures on men. Uh, within family medicine, male family doctors tend to earn more than female family doctors because as women, we spend more time with each of our patients, partly because our patients are more likely to also be women, often with children or with parents. And the ways that we use our time tends to um, disadvantage um, us if we're stuck in a fee-for-service model where we're paid by the number of people that we see in an hour and we see fewer people. Um, what other kinds of biases are there and, and um, uh, what other what other forms of gender based discrimination within medicine? So, so yeah, the, so the gender pay gap, I think, demonstrates a lot of uh, the sorts of biases in, in healthcare. So the sort the type of medicine that women seem to disproportionately deliver. So medicine that is certain types of fee codes, services that are more related to women's health. So women's health is mainly delivered by uh, female physicians. Um, longer appointments, women tend to address psychosocial issues more and, and address more issues in a single appointment. So those things are, are financially, we're basically financially penalized for those sorts of things. This is the example from from the paper I, I, uh, I co-authored in the Canadian Medical Association Journal um, a, a little over a month ago. Um, the example in Ontario uh, that a an abscess on a scrotum, if you surgically remove that abscess, you can be paid twice as much uh, as an abscess on the vulva. And the type of the doctor who is removing an abscess from a vulva is much, much, much more likely to be female 
and the doctor removing an abscess from a scrotum is much, much, much more likely to be male. So the disparities in just the fee codes themselves reveal how women's health is undervalued because really in healthcare, we fund what we value. So the way that we fund things demonstrates what we think about them and how we think those things are important. So even though women actually, female patients actually do um, seek healthcare more often than men, uh, those services tend to be underfunded with respect uh, compared to equivalent services for men. Um, so the, the gender pay gap actually reveals a fair bit both about the disparities, gender disparities and inequities in the payments models and payment structures that are holding women back in a number of ways. Um, but also reveals a lot of the biases um, that women face as patients as well and, and the sorts of funding decisions and, and research and policy decisions that are made around women's health. It's not a coincidence that both you and I set up our practices in the community. And one of the things that I needed to get away from as fast as I could when I graduated from medical school and residency was the institutional setting of the hospital because the hierarchy within the hospital also pits women against women. And we haven't talked at all yet about doctors and nurses. What can we say about that and the gender dynamic that is perpetuated in, in, in hospital settings? So if you, if you think about the way medicine was historically set up, it was that men were the doctors and women were nurses and women were sort of their, their helpers. Even though nursing and women being um, caregivers and administering to, to the ill and, and uh, caring for, for people in the community who are sick actually goes a tradition that goes back thousands of years in many different cultures, sometimes connected to uh, religion and sometimes not. And, and this, is, this predates uh, medicine. So medicine was an, became this place where educated and professional and wealthy, well-connected men could kind of take over and, uh, and start making decisions. And so the, the relationship was set up as that doctors make decisions and the nurses kind of carry out the decisions. And the dynamic, while things have certainly changed and, and now medicine is roughly half female, about 42% female, but in the younger population, younger generation, it's actually uh, now starting to be overrepresented by women. Nursing is still about 90 to 95% female. So it's still very like almost exclusively female uh, profession. So some of those dynamics remain um, where there's sort of that kind of top-down leadership model and that hierarchy as you're as you, you know, quite correct that there's a very strict hierarchy in most hospitals and particularly the academic setting. There's a very, very rigid hierarchy and a rigid hierarchy within medicine as well. So that really perpetuates this sort of um, dominating, domineering kind of attitude, not even though we talk a good game a lot of the time about collaborative healthcare and team-based healthcare and listening to our, our allies and, and our, you know, allied health uh, providers, meaning anyone in healthcare who is not in medicine, uh, you know, the reality is often quite different. And the dynamics between male doctors and female nurses often is kind of a, a dominating sort of um, sometimes aggressive, sometimes condescending sort of dynamic. Although to, to be fair, sometimes the you know dynamic between female doctors and female nurses can be quite difficult as well. There have been some discussion around the biases that female physicians, particularly when they're relatively low on the hierarchy, um, that they can sometimes face from female nurses, that they, they will find that female nurses will be less willing to work with them, 
will be more uh, more likely to do things like question their judgment, question their decisions, tone police them as well, um, you know, accept a, a, an order barked at them in an aggressive way from a, a male resident, but then the female resident has to make friends with all the nurses on the floor, otherwise they won't do anything for her or they won't, you know, help her out when she needs help. And, and those sorts of dynamics are still uh, reflective of the sexist dynamic, a patriarchal dynamic that medicine and hospital medicine really grew out of. Um, so it's, it's going to take a lot more work to undo, untie all of those knots and, and make it a more equitable sort of relationship, a more collaborative relationship like it's supposed to be. Yeah, I certainly found that that was the case when I was a medical student. I had thought that I would maybe even do obstetrics and gynecology. And my experiences on those wards in particular were so traumatizing because of the ways that the female trainees were treated by the nurses and where the male trainees were truly parading around as little gods. And um, and it was really hard. And And it was... It was discour discouraging enough that I just decided to forget about it. Like I'm absolutely, I'm not going to spend any more time on a, on a ward like this than I than I absolutely have to. Which is kind of sad when you think about like call the midwife. I don't know if either I love of you that show. Yes, anyone, yes. But, you know, <laughs> I love that. That's my little escape. Although I hate you know. Then then there's the one male doctor, right? So um, it really kind of um, illustrates that shift in society from it being a women's space and women caring for women to everything being shifted into the hospital and then the sort of male dominated world. Oh, yeah. And I, I have many friends in midwifery and they have stories to tell many have left the profession because it's, <laughs> I mean, talk about unequal treatment. Uh, that's, we can get into that in another episode, mm -hmm. but something else I wanted to bring up too. And something that I often think about is that so much of the medical profession is held up assuming a male doctor with a woman at home to do absolutely everything else. Um, I remember reading a few years ago that they're talking about a shortage of doctors because women doctors are not willing to work the same kinds of hours because they want to actually connect with their children and have a life outside of work. And that this image of the doctor that'll work 24 hour shifts is falling apart uh, because women don't want to do that anymore. But that leads to gaps in the system because you need more people if you don't have less people working more hours. Um, how have you, how have both of you sought to seek some of that balance and what are the barriers that you faced in uh, trying to achieve that? So I, I just want to point out first, that's a very common um, idea that comes mainly from uh, men, or mis I guess misused by men in medicine um, as an example of why we shouldn't be progressing the way that we are with more women in medicine, more women in leadership, because having women in medicine has just kind of destroyed this idea of a calling and that you don't have a doctor who is like devoted 24 seven and abandoning his family and, and all of all of that and that women just don't want that. But I think the, the flip side of that that's often goes undiscussed is that men in medicine are far more likely to have a full-time stay-at-home spouse than women far, far more likely. And I think the what often doesn't get said about that, you know, golden time of men providing 24-7 care and abandoning their families and so on, is that work was really done on the backs of the unpaid domestic labor done by their wives. 
yeah. and they don't they don't acknowledge that there's no acknowledgement it's i you know i did this i had an illustrious career i worked you know 80 hour weeks and i did this and i did that but you know who who took care of your kids and who ironed your shirts and who made you dinner and who you know who did all of those things that helped you have that career and most women in medicine are still you know even if they don't have um, children there's actually we, we discovered when we were writing our paper uh, for the CMAG that when a woman enters into a domestic partnership, her, regardless of whether she has children, just getting into a domestic partnership lowers the um, amount of hours that she works in a given week, whereas the opposite happens for a man. So a man in a being in a domestic partnership for a male doctor means that he can work more. Being in a domestic partnership for a female doctor means that she works less. And this has this is separate from having children. So uh, well, we see, you know, I, I, we see this with women in politics. Now that we have young women entering politics, with some are pregnant, some are having babies, they're breastfeeding their babies, you know, in the middle of parliament. And yeah. uh, I was hearing this from female female academics who were, whose heads were about to explode from the male academics at the beginning of the COVID shutdown, saying, "This is great. I'm getting so much writing done." <laughs> <laughs> I think. Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, talked about how she basically made it very clear that she was not going to do the domestic work. And, um, you know, I mean, that like there are partnerships where the women establish early on that, you know, they want to be the ones um, working all night and working all day. And so it's it's very much dependent on having having a partner who is um egalitarian or who is willing to step aside. And that, that's certainly been true in, in my own life. When I went off to do my PhD research in Australia as a Fulbright scholar, my husband decided to take off a year to take care of our one-year-old son because somebody needed to do it and he didn't have a PhD research program and, and I did. So that was, you know, that was the division of labor. But I have to say that even, you know, even for us, and well, I think we're all exactly the same age, the three of us speaking right now. Um, but, you know, our, like the generational um, gap meant that our parents, my father-in-law for sure, um, I think was quite disappointed. And, you know, there was a lot of questioning of whether or not I was somehow going to ruin my husband's career because, I was the one who was getting priority. And so it's, you know, it's coming up against family and all of those societal expectations about who is going to take the lead and who is going to um, choose. To, and and uh, honestly, I was, you know, envious that my husband got to spend a year hanging out on a beach with our one-year-old son. That was pretty awesome for him. And, uh, and he he wouldn't have traded that for yeah, anything. My, my husband world. also took uh, long parental leaves um, with, with our kids. And uh, yeah, and, and, and every time the reaction in his workplace, I know he's left that, you know, he's moved on to a different type of work now. So every time the reaction was just like, really? Your parental leave again? Like what, what what's your wife doing? <laughs> you know, why can't she? I, I just don't understand. It was just like complete and total confusion. There was not anyone, any any father in his workplace who, you know, would even say something like, oh, that's, that sounds nice. I wish I could do that. Or, you know, good. I hope you enjoy it. Or family time is important time. It was just like, what are you doing? How, how does this doesn't even make sense? It just didn't even make sense to them at all. Um, but that's, that's just the way that it made sense for us. And, and in our current relationship, you know, current situation, we're pretty egalitarian 
when it comes to splitting the domestic load. But, you know, even that being said, there's still um, that burden that the birthing parent and the breastfeeding parent, if that parent breastfeeds, takes on in those first you know, year, couple of years, depending on how long that breastfeeding relationship might last, that is still different. That's still an additional physical, physiological burden that even the most egalitarian relationship is not going to, to you know, make up for. So we still need to f figure out a way to, to support uh, people who want to achieve in their careers, but might need a couple of years where they, they meet those physiological needs of starting a family. When I, when I was a resident, I organized a colloquium at the University of Ottawa for the um, Federation of Medical Women. And um, the, the topic of our discussion one evening was supposed to be barriers to women pursuing careers in surgery. And one of the uh, senior women surgeons stood up and, and started off by saying, there are no barriers. So, you know, my jaw kind of dropped. And then without any irony, she went on to say, there was no maternity leave. The expectation was you, you, if you're going to give birth, you go back to work, you know, three weeks later. Uh, there was no changing room for the women. So the men were literally hanging out in a doctor's lounge and the women had to change in the nursing lounge, which would mean that they would miss whatever important conversations were having, happening for mm -hmm. the male surgeons and so on and so forth. But, you know, her starting point was there were no barriers. I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. And, yeah, not, not surprised. You know, that's that on its own is a barrier to, to discussing these problems, Absolutely. right? If, if we yeah, not surprised. And, and yeah, and, and particularly, I think this is a problem for surgery, but it's definitely been shown in studies of other professions where that were historically male dominated when, when women start to get into those professions, the first pioneers who make it into that profession that has pushed them out for so long, they do it by imitating the attitudes of the people in that profession. So that toxic masculinity culture that is so prevalent in surgery, you know, the first generation of women coming into that and, and probably the second generation as well um, are going to try to model that attitude. And the ones who succeed the most are going to be the ones who seem the most like just one of the other guys. You need a certain critical mass um, when it comes to women entering into a profession, and likewise with other um, unrepresented um, minority groups, you need a certain critical mass before there's actually a change in culture. So I'm not, not surprised to hear, I've heard that kind of thing from, from other women in surgery as well. Well, there's no barriers. These are all just personal choices. We're just making choices to have kids. You're making a choice to breastfeed. You're making a choice to spend time with your family, or you're making a choice to do your work. And it, it just seems so neat and tidy, um, but it's really coming from that toxic masculinity sort of perspective that you have to push, 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 push and work, 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 and nothing else really matters. And if anything else matters, it means you're not doing a good enough job or you're not working hard enough or pushing yourself hard enough, you know, and it's so, but it's so, I think that's something that's really universal across many, many different professions. Yeah. One of the things I really love about the COVID era is it's illuminating the very fuzzy boundaries between domestic labor and paid work. Mm -hmm. um, but we also see that women are overwhelmingly leaving the paid workforce um, during this pandemic. They're the ones taking responsibility for homeschooling children. Um, but, you know, there's bright spots. There was a great moment from the first um, online parliamentary vote of a male MP, actually, from Toronto, who was reading a bedtime story to his child and then popped his head up to <laughs> to vote on a motion and then head back down to tell the story. Um, you know, and we all joke about the BBC dad last year with his kids busting in when he was on TV. I mean, mm -hmm. 
seeing that those boundaries don't exist. I know I've met my own coworkers' children. I've met their pets. <laughs> you know, we're much more invested because we're seeing into each other's homes. I would hope this would make us rethink uh, achievement and leadership and workplace dynamics, uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case in many cases. Yeah, I know. I, I have those moments of hope too, seeing that same sort of thing that, you know, it's not your kid might pop in and interfere with your work or that you have that kind of mix between home duties, domestic duties and work duties and just sort of the juggling act, but just the fact that women are being hit so hard by this pandemic, both from the perspective of being disproportionately the frontline workers, particularly in healthcare, who are getting sick um, and are really face to face with the worst that this pandemic has to offer, but then also the taking the brunt in terms of the domestic work, being the ones who then have to quit their jobs to homeschool or you know just put something aside to to take on more of the duties. So I don't know. I <laughs> I think at this at this point in time I'm a little bit more pessimistic than optimistic, but I think that's a bit in my nature as well to be a bit a bit cynical about stuff like this. I was upset at the dinner table when I when I saw the um, the sick leave um, payments that, you know, I did the calculation for if you have to be at home with your sick child. Now we have sick days. OK, that's great. But then you do the calculation and you're being paid less than minimum wage in order to take off two weeks to take care of your child. My son pointed out, well, mom, that actually ends up being the same amount as people were already getting mm -hmm. for CERB. And um, I was like, okay, I'll concede that is true. But nevertheless, who is leaving their work? And how can we justify that we're only going to pay them, you know, what, what amounts to less than you'd probably be? Oh, yeah. And, to. you know, don't forget the people who are on um, disability support or social assistance are already making way less than exactly. the emergency response payments were too. So it's, it's legalized poverty. Yeah, absolutely. And we already yeah. know that poverty has a feminized yeah. aspect to it as well, right? So like, just like many things, you know, women, particularly racialized and disabled women in our society do do the worst um, in, in all, many of the, the different outcome measures, you know, so it's, it's no surprise, really. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Well, so the, the big thing on? for me, the thing I always come back to is the lack of women in healthcare leadership, you know, that it's still this this tiny, mostly homogenous group. So what the image that often sticks in my mind is one uh, that uh, Women in Global Health, which is an organization that advocates for better representation of women in healthcare leadership. So they, um, they, did, they gave a talk um, and one of the slides had this pyramid on it. And the pyramid is pyramid of, of people who work in healthcare. And so the bottom of the pyramid is women. And depending on which country you are, that is, you know, it's going to be racialized women. It's going to be migrant women predominantly. Um, and that the majority of people in healthcare are female, but they are all disproportionately at the bottom of that pyramid. And the top of that pyramid is where all the decisions get made. And that is, of course, the, the domain of men. So there's, they have a statistic, uh, Women in Global Health, that 70% of frontline healthcare workers are female, but only 20% of the people on the WHO emergency COVID-19 task force are female. This sort of pyramid is something that's reproduced, you know, throughout the world and is certainly true in Canada. So we, we are at, in a place where not only are women forced right now into these sort of like what we were talking about, forced to um, because of all the, the work from home and because we don't have safe schools, forced to give up some of their work, kind of taking a step back into unpaid domestic work, but also the decisions that we are making from a policy perspective are also predominantly being made by white men. And, and you know, the fact that the if you are a migrant racialized female PSW, 
your risk of contracting COVID, of dying from COVID is so much higher than the, and then the men in power are really not at all concerned with the risk that you're taking from my perspective. So that is one very strong uh, argument for better representation within healthcare leadership. And we're really, even though women have moved into medicine in huge numbers in the last four decades, there's just still a, a big glass ceiling when it comes to the very top parts. But that's where all the important decisions are made. So, uh, you know, I talk about this over and over again because I think it's super, super important. Absolutely. When 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 the pandemic's over, I wish we were yeah. just living a little bit closer <laughs> together so that we could <laughs> just yes. get together for a cup of coffee. We've covered a lot of ground, and I know that um, in the interest of time, we're going to have to wrap this up. But um, but there's so much more to talk about. And um, Ariel, is there anything else that you wanted to no, add? No, I just wanted to thank you for your advocacy, because the reason we started this podcast was to highlight the 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 women who are taking on advocacy often off the side of our desks who are maybe not known by people outside of their field. So I'm really glad to hear what you're doing and please keep fighting. We need Thank to. you. Thank you so much. And you too, keep fighting. Absolutely. It's energizing to meet other powerful voices. So Thanks thank very you much. for joining us today. You've been listening to Prescription Advocacy, co-hosted by Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth and Ariel Troster, produced by Alana Stewart. You can visit us on Twitter at rxadvocacy or on our website at rxadvocacy.ca, where you'll find links to the people that we spoke with and the information that they provided and also a full list of credits. Thank you for listening.